Hi, I'm Melissa. Hi, I'm Kara, and you're listening to Cultivated Conversations. A space where we talk about life, family, work, where we're getting it right, and where we're getting it wrong. And what it means to live and purchase ethically in a fast-moving world. Grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, pull a seat up at the table, and know that wherever you are on your journey, you belong, and we are so glad you've joined us. Hey listeners, welcome back to the podcast. Today on the show, we are talking about mass incarceration, another small topic to tackle here on the show. Guys, today is a very sacred conversation and I just let my guest preach. Well, welcome Dominique to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, on the show today, we are talking to Dominique Gilliard, mm-hmm. and he is the author of a book called Rethinking Incarceration, which I just finished, and it blew my mind and asked him to be on the show just to help us talk about this other injustice of mass incarceration. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Yeah, and I was just asking him. If he'd ever been on a fashion podcast before, and I have not. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first. This is the first. Um, Well, tell us about yourself. Give our listeners just a background on who you are and all that. Yeah, so I was born and raised in the metro Atlanta area uh, and stayed there through undergrad. where I did a double major in history and African-American studies. Uh, I went on from there to do a master's in U.S. history with a focus on race, gender, and class in the Appalachian Mountains region of the country. Then I moved on from there to do a second graduate degree in Chicago, uh, where I currently live. Um, And before After finishing school there, I taught at the graduate school for a year and a half and then went out to Oakland, California for about six years and then came back to Chicago where I am now. And in Chicago, or I know you're an author and a speaker, um, do you also work at a church or are you just traveling, promoting the book and speaking? So I work uh, for my denomination, which is the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I serve as the National Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation. And what that essentially means is that at this point, I am a pastor to pastors. And so I coach, train, and resource congregational pastors to make uh, faithful connections between race, faith, and discipleship on the grounds, uh, especially amid some of the racial unrest and animosity that uh, is becoming uh, resurging yeah. in our country. So yeah. Have my hands sure. full. <laughs> for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I first heard you at CCDA this last fall and I had Heard a little bit about mass incarceration, but knew it was just something that I needed to learn more about. And when you got up to speak, I usually take lots of notes, but I just sat there and listened. <laughs> it just felt like such a, a holy time for me just to learn and let the Lord speak to me. And I immediately picked up your book, downloaded the audiobook, and have just been 
trying to absorb it is a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, thanks for doing that. I mean, I think in many respects, uh, mass incarceration is the civil rights issue of our time. Mm-hmm. And it's something that has kind of been transpiring and unfolding under our noses. And most of us have had no clue yeah. uh, that this has been going on, particularly at this rate, really, since 1971. And so... I think the book was really just an effort to try to awaken the masses to mm-hmm. what's been going on in our nation and really call all people, but particularly uh, Christians, to think about what does it mean for us to respond to this epidemic based off biblical principles and convictions, uh, because this is an issue that scripture repeatedly raises up in a way that yeah. I think a lot of us uh, kind of gloss over mm-hmm. um, in the way that we've been taught to read and engage the word. And so I just really wanted to kind of help people understand uh, the urgency of the moment we're in. Yeah. I like what you said, the urgency of the moment. You speak in your book and at CCDA, you talked about this story from your college days that, as you say, changed the trajectory of your life. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that story? So, yeah, I would love to tell you the story. So about 10 miles away from my college campus was a community that was stigmatized for drug trafficking. And because of this, a couple officers were deployed to that neighborhood and they were there to stake it out and kind of discern where the epicenter for trafficking was. One officer said that he had identified the location and he went to a judge and petitioned for something known as a no-knock warrant. A no-knock warrant is a piece of legislation that allows officers to invade a premise without having to stop, announce their presence or off as officers or to display their warrant before going inside. And so the legislation was given to the officer and two nights later, him and two other officers returned to the neighborhood and to the home that the officer had identified. They performed something known as a dramatic entry raid, which is where officers, usually SWAT team members, Mm -hmm. uh, come in and bulldoze the door, and they are dressed in full military-grade weaponry and usually have shotguns uh, drawn when they kick in the door. Uh, They did that that evening at 3 o'clock in the morning, and when they did it, the homeowner, which happened to be a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Katherine Johnston, uh, got startled, thought someone was trying to break into her house, and so she starts to flee, thinking somebody's coming to do harm to her, And the officers see her running. They think that she's trying to uh, escape the scene Mm -hmm. um, so she doesn't get caught for drugs. They deployed 38 bullets and fatally struck her five times in their living room. After shooting and killing her, they searched the entire house uh, for drugs. And there's no drugs and no drug paraphernalia. The officers start to freak out. How do we legitimate what just happened? They ultimately craft a narrative and then decide to unfortunately plant drugs throughout our house to make it look like it was a botched drug raid. Um, The the case goes to court. Those officers stick to the narrative that they composed in the living Mm -hmm. room that evening all throughout court proceedings. And then uh, they found out that they're caught red handed. And then upon finding out, they confessed to the whole thing. So the three officers confessed to planting drugs with 
throughout her house. They confessed to killing her without cause, and the first officer is found to have fabricated evidence to get the no-knock warrant to start with. Yeah. And so after all of that, yeah. uh, when sentencing comes down, the officers are sentenced from a range of five to ten years, which is a fraction of the time yeah. that Catherine Johnston would have gotten if she actually would have been involved in drug trafficking. Yeah. So at that point, I knew um, something was critically wrong with our system. Mm-hmm. And when I went back to school, my African-American studies professors were calling us as concerned citizens to uh, go advocate for legislative reform so that Mm -hmm. vulnerable people like Katherine Johnson didn't continue to be preyed upon systemically by this type of institutional injustice. And I say, yes, that feels good. That feels right. That feels true. What was really disheartening for me was that my church was about 15 miles away from where this happened instead of being 10 miles like my school campus. And they had absolutely nothing to say about it. Yeah. And I said, if anything should be compelling me to stand up for the life, right to the least of these, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and not just my academic institution. So that's yeah. kind of what propelled me into this work. Wow. And I want to come back to that. As you said, your church was, I don't know if you said silence, but I know a lot of times in my church and some of my friends, we feel like there's silence. Yeah. And I want to get into some other stuff, but let's come back to that because I would love to hear your encouragement on how to talk about this at church. Yeah. Yeah. But with mass incarceration, can you set the scene for us? Um, like you said earlier, so many people have, we don't even think about mass incarceration. We have just kind of filed it under you did the crime, you do the time, and we just leave it there. But obviously that's oversimplifying. And just set the scene for us. Tell us what's going on and just kind of the basics that our listeners need to know. Yeah, so the first thing people need to know is that right now in our nation, there are presently more jails, detention centers, and prisons than there are degree-granting institutions. So let me say that in a different way. There are literally more places in the U.S. where you can get locked up than you can get a college education. Mm -hmm. Um, So because of that, in most parts of the country, there are more people serving time behind bars than there are living on college campuses. Yeah. Um, One of the ways that we've had this conversation really poorly is that we talked about mass incarceration as if it's just this male centric reality. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have neglected to talk about how profound of the impact mass incarceration has had on our female population. Um, So, for example, the number of women in prison has increased at a rate of 50 percent higher than men since 1980. Wow. But we don't And that talk. affects, men too affects the whole family, but women in such a different way. Yeah, especially given that about 80% of incarcerated women are mothers. Um, and so given these realities, uh, right now in our nation, one in 14 children has at least one incarcerated parent. One in 14. One in 14. And that number is only exacerbated by race and poverty. Mm -hmm. So one in eight poor children and one in nine black children have at least one incarcerated parent. 
And so this becomes really critically important because mass incarceration has grown to something that it impacts all of us in ways that I don't think that we're really uh, cognizant of. So uh, they just did a study two weeks ago and they found that um, 45% of U.S. citizens have someone in their immediate family who's been incarcerated. Wow. And that number goes up to 64% when you extend it to extended family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the vast majority of people in our country have someone within their extended family who's been touched by the system. And those numbers even increase when you start to look at subsets of the population or break down the population along racial lines or Mm -hmm. mental health lines and these kind of things. So. Right now in our nation, uh, it's predicted that one in three black men, one out of every three black men will spend time behind bars in their lifetime. And the number is one in six for Hispanic males um, and one in 17 for white men. So the number is too high across the board, but oh, yeah. the racial disparities are glaring. And I think they're even more mm-hmm. glaring when we look at our female populace. The number is one in 18 for black women. And it's a 111, one out of 111 for white women. Oh, wow. And so we see the racial disparities. And mm-hmm. from a gender perspective, one of the uh, most glaring stats is in Minnesota. So in the state of Minnesota, Native American women represent 22% of the female incarcerated population, even though they only represent 1.3% of the state's populace. And so we wow. see we see these disparities, um, and they're huge. And when we when we talk about mass incarceration, I say that there's really just five conduits that are flowing people into the system. Uh-huh. So there's the war on drugs, which most people have yeah. heard about. Um, there is the school to prison pipeline, which a number of people have heard about, but if you haven't, it really just highlights the philosophical shift in how we respond to adolescent misbehavior mm-hmm. in K through 12 education. So like when me and you were in school, when we got in trouble, we would get detention and in-house suspension for things. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of doing that, students are being suspended out of house, expelled and arrested in school. So yeah. they just did a study and they found that in 2011 to 2012, 92,000 students were arrested on school property in 92,000 in one school wow. year. Um, 92,000 were arrested. million were suspended and 130,000 were expelled all in one school year. Mm -hmm. So the punitive nature of how we respond to adolescent misbehavior has gone off the charts. Um, The next pipeline, the next three pipelines are pipelines that people don't talk about as much, but um, are just as... uh, powerful pipelines as far as conduits flowing people into the system. Um, The next one is the mental health pipeline um, Mm -hmm. and the way in which we have kind of deinstitutionalized communal mental health programs to the point that right now we have 44 states plus the District of Columbia who have more people with severely diagnosed mental health impairments who are incarcerated than who are receiving treatment in the state's largest psychiatric facility. 
And when they're in jail, they're not getting the proper care, are they? Yep, they are not. And that means that their their symptoms are just worsening and they're deteriorating uh, behind bars. Uh, This problem is so bad that five years ago, medical professionals in the mental health field bluntly said prisons are the new asylums. Mm -hmm. We are warehousing men and women behind bars who have mental health impairments, and some of which don't even have the mental capacities to even understand why they're in jail. Mm -hmm. 90,000 people every year are incarcerated who are legally constituted as incompetent to stand trial, which means they can't mentally even understand why they're in front of a judge. Um, But going back to connecting mental health even with women, um, the U.S. Bureau of Justice found that 75% of incarcerated women in both jails and prisons have some kind of mental health impairment. Mm -hmm. And so uh, mental health is a major driver. Uh, The next major driver is how uh, lucrative private prisons have become. Tell us about this one. uh, Private prisons are really the sinister reality. So Mm -hmm. in um, in 1980, because of the war on drugs, we realized that we were incarcerating people at such a rate that we were literally running out of space within our state and federal facilities to house them. So at that point, we could have done a couple of things. We could have um, looked at alternatives to incarceration for people with substance abuse problems. We could have um, questioned the validity of mandatory minimums. Uh, we could have looked at some diversion programs, or we could have did what we chose to do, which is to say that we're going to keep incarcerating people at this rate mm-hmm. and therefore need to outsource the responsibility of building prisons to a private entity that would be a for-profit industry that would be continue to be able to allow us to incarcerate people at the same rate. So the first private prison doesn't come on the scene until 1984 in Tennessee. And wow. pr- private prisons um, function very much the same way that hotels do. So every single night a hotel is open and there's a vacant room, Mm -hmm. that hotel is losing money. Yeah. Private prisons are the same way except it's for sale. So every single night a sale is open, they lose money. And because of that, when private prisons come into a community, which they usually go into sparsely populated rural communities where the injustice Mm -hmm. that happens is out of sight and out of mind, they come in with a contract. And in the contract, the contract's usually for 10 years, and there's a bed minimum requirement written into the contract that says every single night, at least 70 to 100% of the beds in this facility must be filled. And yes, there are uh, private prisons that have 100% bed requirements. The state of Arizona has three of them. Oh, wow. So if you have a private prison in your community that has a requirement of a quota for the number of beds that must be filled, that puts undue pressure on law enforcement to actually fill those beds. And because if you don't, the private prison company can actually sue the community as being in violation of contract. And that's happened before. Yeah. And so um, it just really becomes this really sinister system where Mm -hmm. if you have a responsibility to lock people up, the people you're going to lock up are going to be the people who have the least means to defend themselves. Um, And so you're going to go and essentially prey on the poor and the vulnerable. Um, One of the ways we see this happening, it's connected to the final pipeline, which is a parallel pipeline to the war on drugs that just hasn't been coined as a war yet, but it's the war 
war and immigration. Mm-hmm. And we see the correlation or the crossover between those last two pipelines and the fact that 73% of people who are detained on immigration offenses are housed within private prisons. Um, and in 2010, there was a bad immigration um, mandate introduced by a Democrat. And I think that's important because mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. we can start to hear things like mass incarceration and start thinking in partisan politics. Mm-hmm. And people can think that this is just like a Democratic uh, uh, talking soapbox uh, against right, Republicans. Right. And it's not because this dem- yeah. this bed mandate that was introduced was introduced by a Democrat uh, from West Virginia by the name of Robert Byrd. And it said that on average, ICE must detain 34,000 people nightly for immigration offenses. And so that congressional directive ensures that there's going to be a good number of people who mm-hmm. are going to be dispersed through these private prisons. Um, but I think it's really important for yeah. us to really, I want to pause for that on the, the bipartisan nature of this problem, because this is yeah. not something that Republicans have built this is alone. This is something that both Democrats and Republicans are implicated in. Mm-hmm. And uh, the political rhetoric and fear-mongering that happens that has really led us to the point that we are in regards to mass incarceration with get tough on crime, law and order, zero tolerance, uh, three strikes you're out, capital punishment. All of these things are really uh, incentivized by the dehumanizing rhetoric and uh, stereotyping rhetoric Mm -hmm. that both political parties use. So I think about... um, how Democrats uh, have used language about uh, members of the black community being super predators who are going to come and violate your community. I think about uh, conservatives using language around um, people coming from south of the border, calling them animals who are going to come and rape and pillage our communities. And we have to see how when we use these these fear, this fear-induced language, how it leads people to cling towards punitive strategies and responses right. uh, within our criminal justice system that really don't bear witness to the best of who we are. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, all of us should be able to agree that no person should be forever defined by the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah. And yeah. if everybody knew and defined us by the worst thing we had ever done can you imagine how horrible yeah. <laughs> life oh would be um yeah. And so yeah it's just really a question about us kind of really getting down to the to the nitty-gritty and reminding ourselves of the grace that kind of has been extended to us and how that grace should inform how we respond to other people who stand in the need of grace. And Mm -hmm. lastly, I'll end with this piece. Uh, Brian Stevenson says uh, he is a a great civil rights activist, runs the Equal Justice Initiative down in Montgomery, Alabama. Some people have said that he is uh, the Nelson Mandela of the U.S., Mm-hmm. Um, he's a name that all your listeners should know, um, but he was a civil rights attorney uh, in the system for about 20 years. Um, and he said, we have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you are rich and guilty than if you are poor and innocent. Uh-huh. And we really need to wrestle with how wealth, not guilt, actually informs who spends time behind bars today. Yes. And so... Yeah. 
should see my face. <laughs> You're getting lots of head nods and lots of, oh my word, on my face. Whew, I think all of our listeners are taking a deep breath. Um, something I do want to talk about is this punitive versus restorative. Unpack that for us on, because you mentioned punitive a little bit, but talk about how our our view and our heart on this needs to change toward restorative. Yeah, so the restorative view is rooted uh, in the belief that no one is beyond redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and all people have the possibility of being rehabilitated. Um, yeah. And so restorative justice you see it even in the title it says for justice to be achieved there has to be some tangible plan for restoration and for healthy reintegration into our communities at the person Mm -hmm. after a person has been held accountable for their offense and have learned from and turned away from that that nature of behavior so that they can be reintegrated into society in a way that helps our communities become safer more full places Mm-hmm. Um, and so our present criminal justice system, the way that it functions, it says that crime is a crime not against an individual, but it, it's a, an offense against the state. And because of that, uh, when it comes time for sentencing, the victim doesn't actually even get to speak into the process of what uh, punishment or accountability looks like. The victim is silenced, and this becomes a really problematic Um, reality when sometimes sentencing comes down and the victim actually has stepped forward towards the judge and to the jury and said, I actually don't want this for the person who committed this Uh offense because it's actually not going to help them or us or our whole community heal. Mm -hmm. What I would rather uh, see is this. And the judge actually silences them and says that there's no room for you to speak into the process. So... Within a justice system where the person who has been violated, if they don't have a voice to speak into the system, I don't understand how we could call that justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, community uh, restorative justice paradigm always says that crime is not just a, an offense against the state. It's first and foremost an offense against the individual, the victim, mm-hmm. but also against the victim's community. Because whatever yeah. I do to you is going to have a communal impact. Mm-hmm. And so if it has a communal impact, then the community has to be at the table and collectively helping to discern what accountability looks like, what punishment looks like, but also what healthy reintegration will look like once you've learned from your offense and turned away from your old ways. Yeah. And I think too, you and I share the same faith and I just believe so whole, wholeheartedly that our communities suffer when we're not all living from who God created us to be. And so just in that restorative that if we're looking at it punitively and and not how can we restore here so that you can invest in your community and live from your heart that God gave you. Yeah, because I mean, biblically, uh, the scripture tell us for God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. So mm-hmm. God 
was in Jesus actually starting the process of recalibrating things, rectifying things, making things right again. And it also tells us that uh, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son and Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Mm -hmm. Scripture says while we were yet enemies of God. And so it's not once we got our stuff together, but it was while we were still jacked up (laughs) and Mm -hmm. living in opposition to God that Jesus was willing to die for us. So and Jesus then through that act of love actually adopts us and claims us as God's children. So that grace that really uh, adopts us and identifies us as God's children was meant to hallmark how we respond to other people who stand in the need of grace today. And Mm -hmm. so we need to understand the necessity of grace and mercy and how the grace that we first got should be extended to others. Yeah. Amen. Um, I do too want to talk about, I, you have this graphic of how we have been, I forget the year, but our violent crimes have not increased, but who we, how many people we have incarcerated has just, I say it's flown off the charts, um, but it's that nonviolent versus violent crime. Can you kind of explain just a little bit of that for our Listeners, I'm thinking our new folks coming to this conversation are going, how has that happened? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll send you the graphic, too, so you can oh, have it um, for people to listen to. So it's a graphic that shows uh, the breakdown of our criminal justice system in 1970, a year before the war on drugs was launched. And it's juxtaposed against a chart that shows our criminal justice system in 2015. And when you look at it, you can see that there has essentially been no growth in violent crime. Um, but the crime that is exploded off the charts are nonviolent crimes. And that is what constitutes the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation. Mm-hmm. And so when we really look into it and press into the numbers, um, kind of what we were talking about with the pipelines, mm-hmm. we'll see that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our country are there for nonviolent offenses and they are there usually for substance abuse addictions or because of mental health impairments or lastly because they're immigrants or refugees fleeing another country Mm -hmm. trying to come into our country either for uh, sanctuary or Mm -hmm. to make a better life for their family all three of which are nonviolent offenses and we see that all three are the least of these people who are suffering from some kind of cognitive impairment, some kind of substance abuse addiction, some chemical imbalance, or they are people who are just in desperate need of a better life. And so Mm -hmm. we're really incarcerating the least of these, the poor amongst us, people who need medical interventions instead of incarceration. Yeah. And that's why the rhetoric that I talked about from uh, politicians becomes so important Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they use this rhetoric to make us believe that the vast majority of people in our system are there for violent offenses Mm -hmm. and we need to keep ourselves, quote unquote, safe from them. And it creates, yeah, it creates Mm -hmm. this us and them, but it's it's not true. Um, About 26% of people who are incarcerated in our nation are there for violent offenses. So the 26%. Vast, yeah, about 20 is it's between 26 and 28 percent. Um, so the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation are there for nonviolent offenses. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I like what you said. They're trying to make us think, protect your family, protect yourself. When, whew. Um, my family is, we volunteer a lot with refugees in Tulsa. And I always tell people that I have no concerns with refugees that we welcome at the airport or the friends we have that are refugees. There's just no level of concern. Um, but then I always say, but if there ever was, I believe the love of Christ can change the hardest of hearts. And so we will be there with a big smile on our face saying, welcome. Yep. (laughs) Because if I really believe what I say, I believe then I believe. Yeah. That's my soapbox. But yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean, as the body of Christ in particular, I mean, we gather every single Sunday We preach sermons, we sing songs, and we pray prayers thanking God that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Yes. Mm -hmm. But then when we turn around and go and politically uh, engage in our system, we vote for legislation that says that certain things can and that certain people are irredeemable. Because at at the end of the day, that's what capital punishment says. Yeah. Capital punishment says that there's certain people, all we can do is put them to death. There is no redemption. There is no transformation that can happen in these people. A person who has committed pedophilia is a pedophile. A person mm-hmm. who has murdered is a murderer. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't understand how when we call people and label them by the worst thing that they've ever done, we're slowly but surely dehumanizing them. Uh And when we dehumanize them, it makes us feel okay to enact these kind of grotesque injustices against them because they're not truly humane like you and I am. Um, They're not moral, ethical people. And so just because a person has committed uh, an atrocity, don't don't hear me trying to water down what they did. What they did was vile. It was offensive. It needs to, there has to be accountability for it. But at the end of the day, does that mean that that person is beyond redemption? If you're a Christian, I don't think the gospel allows you to say that. Right. Right. So how do we, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but you know, I follow you on Instagram and a few other folks that really help me stay in the know of things going on around the country. But then I go into my faith community and we're not talking about these things. What encouragement do you have for us as we, you and I are talking on a Friday, so in two days we're going to church and we're not going to be talking about these, these things. How do we start that conversation or any encouragement you have for us? Yeah, um, I think we need to understand how near and dear this whole conversation is to the church and to the gospel. Um, The reality is that when we talk about incarceration in particular, there are five of the books of the Bible were written in prison. Mm So this is not like something that's like estranged from our faith. This is actually near and dear to the faith. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, and Revelations were all written in prison. Um, But in addition to that, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that if you are a follower, if you're one of my followers, you're supposed to be present behind prison bars. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say if you're a liberal, progressive. It says if you follow me, you're supposed to be present behind the prison bars. And when you visit the least of these, you're not just visiting them, but you're visiting me. Because mm-hmm. whatever you did to the least of these, you've done to me. So oftentimes say we don't know these realities because we don't go spend time with Jesus mm-hmm. behind bars. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, I think the other piece of it is, is that there is no gospel without incarcerated people like literally if you take all incarcerated people out of the bible the bible falls apart yeah jesus the author and perfect of our faith john the baptist who was called to pave the way for jesus paul who wrote the majority of the new testament peter to whom jesus said upon you i will build my church samson hananiah zeer joseph malachi stephen jeremiah shadrach meshach abednego silas junia andronicus all incarcerated people And so I think um, the other piece of it is, is that there's tons of stories that talk about uh, Christians uh, being incarcerated, particularly because of their countercultural witness. And mm-hmm. they're distinctively living for Jesus in the midst of worldly empires that had other priorities. And so uh, one of the classic examples is the story in Acts 16 about Paul and Silas going to jail. Um, it's a crazy story where basically Paul and Silas are incarcerated because they liberate a demon-possessed woman who mm-hmm. some powerful slave-owning men were extorting to her and yeah. making tons of money off of it. And then the passage says that they were incarcerated because these men's hope for lo- making money was gone and they threw the city into an uproar. So that wow. means not only were these two men uh, benefiting, but the entire city was uh, benefiting off of the oppression of vulnerable people. And in doing so, in liberating this woman in the name of Jesus Christ, they threw the whole city into chaos. And so we keep going, the story talks about how because of this, they took the two men into the the judicial square, which doubles as uh, the marketplace. And what they're trying to help you understand in layering it like that is that the judicial magistrates are actually more committed to things as they are than justice. They're more Mm -hmm. concerned with the financial profiteering of powerful people than actually making sure that the least of these actually have a judicial system that will stand up with integrity and advocate Mm -hmm. on their behalf. And then it says that Paul and Silas ultimately endure police brutality before they're falsely incarcerated. And when they're falsely incarcerated, they ultimately are released, but not before... um, the passage says that the, the the judicial leaders got concerned when they found out that they were Roman citizens. And mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. the critical piece mm-hmm. with that story is that they didn't care about oppressing them until they realized that these were men with privilege and status. And mm-hmm. when they realized that they were Roman citizens, they say, OK, release them. But Paul does something really bold. He says, look, they publicly humiliated us. They stripped us. They uh we endured police brutality in front of all these people, and now they want to release us quietly. No, tell them to come out and release us themselves with an apology. And I think that that's has wow. something really powerful to say to us today when we live in a society where, uh, just like Paul and Silas, there are people who have certain privileges that will make uh, people in power respect them in a different way than other people. 
Mm-hmm. And if you do have that kind of privilege and status in society, are you willing to leverage it for, to hold a system accountable? Yeah. Are you willing to make sure that they are treating all people justly and not just you because of your privilege and status in society? And so yeah. I think scripture constantly is bringing this at, before us as something to be talked about, something to be engaged as people of faith. Uh, The question Mm -hmm. is, are we willing to disrupt our nice, neat, personalized um, stories of salvation and the gospel to understand that the invitation of the gospel has always been more of more than a get out of hell free card. Uh-huh. Um, the gospel is an invitation to actively participate in the world in a way that we are bringing in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Um, we are collaborating with God. That's why scripture calls us uh, co-laborers with Christ. Mm-hmm. So we're actively working and moving to bring about the restoration of all things, not because we're salvific people, but because we have the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has entrusted us with to be his partners in a broken world um, in a way that helps people understand that God has a different plan and that that plan is in the midst of unfolding right now. Yeah. Ooh, man, you are a good preacher. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love when people have that gift to take a story in scripture that I might've just read over quickly and unfold it, that it just blows my mind. Mm. So with that, I know a lot of my listeners are okay you opened our eyes now what yep and they've done this with ethical fashion we said they're slaves making our clothes we need to demand a new process and they are changing the way they're purchasing so with this opening their eyes to what's going on and for our uh jesus followers in the crowd you've set it for them on this is what our faith teaches in scripture mm-hmm. so what's can you give us some next steps i mean i say go read his book Please. download the audiobook and then you just came out with a small group study right yes it's a free video based uh small group curriculum that walks you through uh the book and then after you download the curriculum which all it takes is you put in your email address there's mm-hmm. a 20 point platform for advocacy and reform that shouldn't be hindered by bipartisan politics it's really high level stuff uh that will help make our criminal justice system a more humane and dignifying place where people People can actually have a real transformation uh, and healthy reintegration after they serve their time. That's awesome. We're going to put a link to that on the show notes. Could you give us a little preview, just a few things yeah. that we can do in our communities and nationwide? Yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you a couple. So I say that every church should be involved in at least one of four ways. Um, there's prevention. Uh, ministry to the incarcerated, walking alongside of family members who have incarcerated loved ones, and then there's the reentry process. Um, I'll actually, um, yeah, within the resource, it actually breaks each of those down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I think things that we can do is we can actually start to do some research to understand, uh, just like you talked about your listeners, understanding how. Uh, slaves in different countries were making their yeah, uh, clothes. their clothing. That's happening here in the U.S. too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so most people don't realize that uh, we're taught in our educational system that we ended slavery in 1865. Uh, that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. Because of the loophole that exists in the 13th Amendment, which says slavery in our nation is illegal except as a punishment for a crime, there are millions of slaves right here in the U.S., and it's constitutionally okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, when you look at the labor and the commerce that's produced behind bars, there is slave labor that's producing things that are in all of our households, Um, everyday items that are in the U.S., um, from the uniforms that our our children wear when they play sports Mm -hmm. to... uh, Ironically, off, uh, law enforcement's uh, uniforms uh-huh. to license plates to furniture that's produced for college campuses to lingerie from Victoria's Secret to items produced by Whole Foods. Uh, this is everywhere, um, wow. and they're making um, they're making airplane parts for Boeing. So when we fly, I mean, this is we are thoroughly oh. implicated in what's going on. And the other way that we're implicated is through uh, our banking institutions, where we choose to um, house our money. Um, So thank God, um, Chase, uh, uh, JP Morgan just finally decided they're going to fully divest themselves from private prisons. But prior to, they just made that decision uh, three weeks ago, and in large part because of uh, people of goodwill putting pressure on Chase to do so. Um, mm-hmm. Brian Stevenson, who I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. he actually called a, a meeting with Chase executive bankers and actually helped them understand how thoroughly implicated within the injustice of mass incarceration they were by lending to private prisons, which allowed them to expand their their enterprise. And yeah. they said they didn't want to be any part of it. And they said they're formally breaking all ties with private prisons. So they're the first awesome. of the six major banking institutions to do it but wells fargo is also implicated they just had a recent meeting and they said they're going to reduce their connection but we need them to fully break it um SunTrust is also um, implicated. And so there, there are a couple other banking institutions. And so I have on the list of resources, it's, it's a whole list of them. But then also where we house our money for our retirement funds and our hedge funds, um, they're also implicated. And so just getting more aware and yeah. being willing to divest ourselves from systems that are re-perpetuating injustice within our world. Um, those would be the ways that I would say uh, we can be really intentional about this. Um, but then there's everyday things that we can be doing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about prevention, um, I just run down a few things for prevention. Um, so one, there's this huge movement right now to end cash bail. Um, and cash <laughs> bail is one of the major cogs that keep our criminal justice system functioning the way that they do. So one of the, the mythologies about the U.S. is that we are a nation where people are innocent until proven guilty. Well, recent studies have actually shown that 75 percent of people in U.S. jails today are not there because they've been convicted of any crime. It's because they can't afford to pay their cash bail. Mm-hmm. And so... When you have, we have a reality where right now we spend $14 billion a year locking up people who have not been convicted of a crime. That's $40 million a day. Uh, This is 
fiscally irresponsible. Yeah. Um, so there's this new movement uh, where people of goodwill mobilize together and put their money in a pot um, that's a cash bail fund. And so what you do is people who can't afford their bail, you take that fund and apply it to the bail charge. And those people actually don't have to spend time incarcerated before they've been convicted of any crime. And that money gets returned to you once they actually go stand before the tr- uh-huh. judge. So it's this replicatable way of actually making sure that people don't get incarcerated because what's critically important is that uh, poor people or working class people, it's been proven that three days away from work, unscheduled, yeah. uh, will lead to unemployment, will lead, mm-hmm. which leads to homelessness, which leads to other forms of housing um, and familial insecurities. Yeah. And so we get a chance to actually bridge the gap for people who just financially can't do so on their own. Um, yeah. Churches, and uh, I encourage churches to consider finding the school closest to you who has the highest number of students on free or reduced lunches Uh um, because in those schools you oftentimes find teachers who are already underpaid who Uh are taking money out of their own pockets to provide school supplies for their children because of Mm -hmm. the inadequate funding that exists in our nation so churches we're in oklahoma we know how that is yeah so churches can actually leverage their social capita adopt a school and use some of their resources to create a more equitable playing field Mm -hmm. another thing uh, people might have heard that they use third to fifth grade reading and math scores to know how many uh, prisons they need to build in the future. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to go to your elementary school in kindergarten, first and second grade and say, hey, give me the students who are furthest behind on Mm -hmm. reading and math. I want to work with those students and get them back up to grade level. That will create a new projection, which will limit the number of prisons that we're actually building. Um, I talk about after school programs to do that too. Yep. There's after school, there's in school possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all of these different ways. I talk about getting involved in the foster care system. Um, When I was in California, I found out that 70% of the incarcerated people throughout the state came out of the foster care system. Mm-hmm. So there is this direct correlation between foster care um, and incarceration. And then yeah. I'll just give you uh, two other um, possibilities. Um, one of the things uh, I talked about students on free and reduced lunches. One of the reasons why this is important, because we know a lot of those students, that's the only nutritious meal they'll have access mm-hmm. to the whole day. But we don't really ask the question, what happens to those students on the weekends or when yeah. uh, holidays or during the summer when school is not in session? For a lot of people, it becomes a really hard question. What do I do to put food on my table to to make Mm -hmm. sure that I don't starve? And so um, one of the things that churches can also volunteer to do is to serve as a summer feeding program. And the Mm -hmm. government will actually provide the food. They just need institutions that are willing to house the programs. And so you can uh, become a place of literal physical good news, but then you can also build relationships with individuals that allow you to give them the spiritual good news that they might not even known that they need it. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is that there are a number of communities right now, given the food insecurity that so many students have and the homelessness, um, there's so many youth within our K through 12 educational program who are actually homeless youth who blend in schools on a daily mm-hmm. basis and people don't know. But there are a number of programs that are actually starting to pack these special book bags that actually have um, food for the week. 
Oh, yeah. They do that in Tulsa. So these are all just very tangible, preventative yeah. things that we can do on an everyday basis to help um, mm-hmm. address these issues within our criminal justice system. Yeah. And we know, too, just if they're having good nutrition, yeah, how the school day is going to go is way different. Way different. Yep. And then on the reentry side, one thing that's just really critically important, I just want to raise this up, is um, one of the primary ways that that people of good faith, but particularly Christians, can aid returning citizens is find out who in your community is willing to hire someone who has a criminal record. Yeah. Um, What companies are willing to hire and then go to other companies that you constantly uh, patron and ask them why they're not willing to and see if they're willing to start a conversation about what that could do for the entire community. Um, And when you do find uh, companies that are willing to um, hire returning citizens, be intentional about supporting those communities and tell Mm -hmm. them that a part of the reason why you're supporting them is because of their choice, their countercultural choice to hire people with records. Yeah. And I just think sometimes we don't even know the privilege we have, but One of the privileges I have is I know that I know business owners. Yep. So reaching out to my friends who are actually in leadership and companies or owners. Yeah. I mean, within the clothing industry, this could be, I mean, all you think about all the the startups and the people who have their own little boutiques, like this could Mm -hmm. be a very real way to for job creation for people coming out of the system who are disenfranchised and don't have access to work oftentimes and that becomes really critical because for a lot of people um work or being able for me a number of men being able to make child support payments become a stipulation of their probation for them to continue to be free on the outside and so yeah yeah yeah. Um, well, so I didn't prep you on this, but <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel blessed to be talking to you. And then I, I know our listeners are just feeling blessed to be listening. Yeah. Um, but one of the things we actually do with all of our guests, a lot of them are connected to the ethical fashion world. But so I always ask what their new favorite ethical brand is. But I wondered if you knew any social enterprises or ethical brands that are actually making a difference in in this realm of mass incarceration? That is a really good question. Um, Off the top of my head, I can think of very small scale ones. Uh Um, I was thinking even, I looked up Homeboy Industries. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they do sell some products as well. Oh, well, if we're just talking about products, I was thinking more specific clothing. Um, yeah. Oh, so there's yeah. there's this there's this really cool organization that I've actually been in. Um, Homeboys, yes. Uh, they have Homeboys Bakery. They have a Homegirls um, line as well uh, okay. as a way of empowering their, their women. But there's this really cool uh, business in uh, Minneapolis called all square um Uh and so it is a restaurant that special specializes in grilled cheese sandwiches and everybody who's employed through the business is a returning citizen and Uh they um it's called all square because we say that people go to prison to pay their debt to society. So when they Uh come out, their debt should be paid and they shouldn't have to continue to pay on the outside. So they're saying that we're all square. Mm -hmm. And so um, they make about nine different um, 
gourmet grilled cheese sandwiches and then they have a training program that uh is right next to it and the men and women get a chance to go through job training skills they get to specialize in anything from becoming a public speaker to pursuing a law a a profession in law to Uh getting job and resume Uh, prep and training and so that's a really great org Um, another one in the bay area is one called old school cafe um Uh i talk about this one a little bit in the book um but it is a uh, entertainment theater um restaurant where you have youth who are trained everything in all of the culinary positions from being a hostess to being a head chef. Um, And then you also have youth who are out doing the performance side who do everything from spoken word to uh, rap to R&B and they perform uh, for the patrons and it's this really holistic wraparound service that gives people the mental physical and spiritual uh, tools they need to come back and thrive in society that's awesome we have um speaking of this restaurant up in minneapolis we actually have a place here in tulsa it's called take two and they it sounds like a very similar except for the grilled cheese i'm gonna need them to franchise <laughs> yeah, that down here they got jerk, cheese you got jerk chicken grilled cheese i mean it's you got the mm. whole man it's a whole laundry list of really cool creative ideas that's awesome but yeah take two in tulsa it's just open for lunch downtown so a lot of um, businessmen and women frequent it and it's they have a place for the women to stay and they're hiring women that are coming out of incarceration. So, Yeah, there's a similar similar. org in Louisville. I was just in Louisville about a month ago. Um, And they have this uh, restaurant where essentially sounds like take two, but you have a lot of people who will pay for two two meals. And that allows somebody else who comes in who doesn't have the means to pay for anything to already have their meal paid for. And a lot of times what happens is a person comes in and they're ready to pay and then they find out their meal is free and then they say, well, I'll go ahead and pay it forward for the next person. Uh-huh. And it always allows uh, men and women, particularly men and women with children who don't have the means to feed their family to be able to come and have a meal covered for them. That's and awesome. they get a chance to work. And it's not just that they give it to them, but they get a chance to go back and work as a busboy in the kitchen or uh-huh. as wait staff to actually work off their food if they actually didn't have somebody who was going to cover it for them. So it becomes yeah. this really holistic empowerment model. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'm overwhelmed with your uh, generosity to be on the show. Uh, oh, I'm I'm excited to expand and to get into the fashion world. Right? (laughs) 